All right, ladies and gentlemen, today, just I want to tell you this first of all, we have two weeks left of our sermon series on heresy. Following this, we're going to step into something probably slightly more approachable, which is practical theology. And so the series following our series on heresy is going to be a series on how theology affects our everyday life. I know Becca is planning on teaching on addiction and how sin has addictive tendencies. I am at one point planning on teaching on singleness and relationships. At some point, we're probably going to teach on pornography. Uh, and there's other things as well. International Justice Mission has their Freedom Sunday whenever they talk about the way that theology affects us and slavery today. Uh, there's going to be lots of good stuff to talk about in that one. So uh, if you've been having a little bit of trouble slogging through uh, heresy, please note, something else is coming. Winter is ending. No? Okay. Summer is ending. Winter is coming, actually. Just throwing that out there. Sadly. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh. Ah, we're talking about how Stephen, in, in our Bible study in the morning, we're talking about how Stephen is actually just the epitome of an Old Testament prophet, including the fact that he dies at the end. So, you know, that's what prophets do. Donatism. Donatism is what we were talking about today. I need that. I'm going to be thirsty. I don't care if I knock it over. It'll make a loud rack and it's fine. Donatism is what we are talking about today. It is the heresy that we are discussing uh, because of the heret Donut or Donut. I'm making that up. It's totally not his name. All right? So this heresy, Donatism, is a heresy that was found, uh, founded in the late 4th or early 4th century. Uh, it is a heresy that basically holds this. I'm going to say it very simply and briefly. The heresy states that in order for Christian clergy to be effective clergy, they are required to be faultless. In order for clergy to be effective clergy, they are required to be faultless. And of course, I'm fine with this doctrine. There's no reason why I would have issues with it, but some other pastors might. No? Okay. So this is really fun how it kicked off. This, this kicked off because of some actions that happened in the late late 3rd and early 4th centuries uh, because of this one dude named Decius and this other guy named Valerian. Decius and Valerian were two empires, emperors of Rome, uh, and they were both very big on wanting to see the glory of Rome come back into play. And they wanted to see uh, the gods of Rome be worshipped again. One of the reasons why they thought Rome was falling or failing in its glory was because the people had left behind their old gods and were chasing after these new gods like this Yahweh character the Christians were always talking about. And so they wanted to try and restore Rome's glory, and in order to do so, they felt they had to restore Rome's gods. Now, they had seen before that persecution, whenever it led to martyrdom, for some reason had the effect of causing Christianity to spread. And they didn't want to see that happen again. But they also didn't want it to be easy to be Christian. And so they did some other things. These things they did were requiring everybody in the entire empire of Rome to have certificates stating they had effectively sacrificed to the Roman gods. So everyone had to have a certificate on that said, yes, I partook in sacrifices and demonstrated I am willing to. Now, for some reason, Christians found this concept distasteful, largely because they didn't like to sacrifice to false gods. You know, for some reason, there's this whole thing against avoiding idolatry or worshiping other gods that we didn't like. And so Christians didn't want to do this. And while they did not want to have martyrs created, 
This ended up leading to some martyrs created because Christians would refuse and choose not to worship Roman gods uh, under penalty of death at times. Now, it's worth noting the majority of the penalty that occurred was not the penalty of death. Instead, they did things like they would simply take Christians and torture them or take their property or remove things from their lives until they finally gave up and worshipped. And people would end up in trouble. So because of this persecution, because of this requirement for Christians to uh, worship a Roman god to effectively take part in the Roman economy or effectively take part in Roman citizenry, some things happened. Some Christians refused and said, there is no way I will ever worship another god and there is no way I will ever even make it look like I have done so. So I will just refuse whenever asked and I will stay and undergo any torture, undergo any economic hardship, undergo the loss of all my property, undergo everything, and I'll just accept it. And there were some who said, you know what? I'm not going to worship another god, but I also don't want to lose everything, so I'm going to buy a fake certificate or make a fake certificate so it looks like I did, but I never actually did. There were some that fled and left and went to different parts of the of the empire that were less likely to actually care about this because they were likely controlled by Christians. Uh, some of our early church fathers actually got in trouble for this because a couple of them ran <laughs> and went and hid somewhere else instead of staying and facing martyrdom or persecution. Uh, one of them, to prove the fact that he wasn't scared of it, offered himself for martyrdom during a next persecution. Like, no, I wasn't scared to. I thought it was best for my flock for me to not die at that point. And there were those who succumbed and did worship other gods. These people were called the lapsed. The Christians, the early church called them the lapsed, those who had lapsed in their faith. And there were different levels of people who had lapsed. There were those who had lapsed by uh, fleeing, but never submitting in any way to Rome's authority. They were still considered lapsed, because they didn't accept persecution or martyrdom. They ran from it. There were those who were considered lapsed because they bought certificates to make it look like they had done so, even though they had not done so. There were those who lapsed under extreme torture. They had been tortured for two months. And you know what? Afterwards, eventually you're willing to do pretty much anything to stop someone from hurting you. Then there were those who just said, you know what? I'm not willing to face this. Oh, you want me to worship God? Sure, sure. Oh, come on. Here you go. Da -da -da. Anything else you need me to do? No? No? Anything else? They were all falling into this camp of the lapsed, okay? And so whenever these persecutions ended, because both of these rounds of persecution ended pretty quickly, the church had to figure out what they were going to do because a lot of the people who lapsed wanted to come back in to fellowship with the church or wanted to step back in. In fact, one of the issues that actually happened was that there were those who lapsed during the persecution, and then still during the persecution, realized they shouldn't have, went back and recanted and tried to join the church during the persecution. So that's one. There's also the concept of, did you try and rejoin the church while you could still be killed for it, or did you wait until you couldn't? There were all of these deep and difficult issues that took place. Uh, and because of this, some other things happened afterwards. One, 
the church itself had to decide how could they effectively communicate to people whenever they had repented of their sins. And also, how could you communicate to the church itself that other people had repented of their sin? This is one of the ways that the penitent system in Catholicism began to build itself up. There needed to be a way for people to know, you know what, no, we have shown proper penitence for the lapse that we had had in our faith. And we have to be able to show the church, no, these people have demonstrated penitent behavior. And then on top of that, there were some other things. There was another group of people that were known as the traitadors. Traitadors. These were church leaders, okay, who during this time of persecution also in a way lapsed, but they lapsed in a different way than most Christians because it was also illegal to hold Christian texts. And most of Rome knew who most of the local Christian leaders were because the Christians weren't very good at saying, no, these are not our bishops. In Hydem, you knew who the bishop of a city was. So whenever Rome made Christianity defunctedly illegal, they also attempted to collect all Christian scriptures and texts to destroy and burn. And some church leaders, to save their own lives, or some would say to protect their congregations, would go to Rome and turn in their copies of Scripture to be destroyed. Now, there were some who lied and brought out random pieces of paper that were not Scriptures. Now, here's this letter from Clement I got yesterday. It's a Scripture. Go ahead and burn it. It's cool. Or here's this random gospel from the third century that we know is nothing, but hey, it looks good. Here you go. Get rid of it, right? But then there were some who turned in copies of what we see as the New Testament or Septuagint for destruction. They would burn them. And they would do so voluntarily. And these were known as traitadores, those who turn in. Uh, that's where we get the word traitor from. <laughs> what do we do with Christian clergy who didn't just fall under torture, but who willingly gave up that which we consider the most worthy or highest authority we have. Uh, if you are to hold the word of God sacred, which the early church believed you were supposed to do, to turn that in is tantamount to turning your back on God himself and the church itself. What do you do with leaders who did this? Okay? And what happened was a split occurred. One of the first main schisms within the early church. Because up until this point, there was a pretty good run of apostolic succession. And so a, an apostle appointed someone to lead a local church in an area. Then that person who was appointed appointed another leader following it. And then whenever there are enough of these local leaders, they would appoint together other leaders for different areas. And this sort of ended up and kept going on and on with no big issue. Until this occurred. Then there were groups of people who began to have questions and say, wait a minute, no, 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 no. Just because that person was appointed by someone who was appointed by someone who was an apostle doesn't mean they're worthy of being a clergy member, especially whenever they sin in this manner. And if they can sin in that manner, that means that they were probably always sinful. They were never good enough. And if they were never good enough, wait a minute, if they were never good enough, what about the people they baptized? 
oh, if they were never good enough, what about the people they gave the Eucharist to? If they were never good enough, what about the people who they gave uh, or they married? Like, what do we do with this? You know what? Those things they did, they're probably invalid. They don't matter. This is Donatism. This concept that if clergy are broken or sinful, then the things they have done are no longer valid. Okay? So this occurred because specifically in one area in northern Africa, a bishop was appointed. And this bishop that was appointed by the church had three other bishops who were the ones who laid hand on him and appointed him to office. And two of those people, everyone was cool with. They had lasted through the trials. They had had no problems. Uh, they had uh, been confessors, those who confessed the faith in God, regardless of what was undergoing. Uh, but there was one person who there was a question of whether or not this person had turned over scriptures to Rome. And the people in North Africa said, no, the bishop you appointed doesn't count because one of the people who appointed him was a traitor. And he didn't have authority to appoint that bishop. And therefore, that bishop is invalid. So we're going to appoint our own. And uh, the second line of successor, the person who was appointed by that bishop, is this guy, uh, Donatin, I believe his name is. Uh, I cannot pronounce Latin well, so my apologies. But he was the second in this line. He's the one who this type of uh, schism was named for. Okay? Now, there are some things that actually happened because of this. One, their group of churches became wildly popular in northeastern Africa and some parts of Central Asia. Wildly popular to the point that there were two competing churches in most towns. So many churches had a church that was of apostolic authority and what would be considered the early Catholic church. And there were many churches that also popped up in the same town where there would be a second church on the opposite side of town that was a Donatist church. All right? So one under this bishop's authority, one under this bishop's authority. Uh, if you shifted from the Catholic church to the Donatist church, then they would rebaptize you because they held that your Catholic baptism was invalid. If they shifted the other way, though, if you were a Donatist and shifted into the Catholic Church, the Catholics would not rebaptize you because they held that even though that bishop was invalidly appointed, the thing that he did was still appropriate. <laughs> All right? And so the, sanct the, sa the sacrament itself was still valid. Interesting. It was weird how this worked out. But those Donatists, because they were set up because they loved people who had never sinned and who had never fallen, they also began to really appreciate this concept of standing firm under persecution. And so some other things started to get added into this. And one of those things that really got added in was this concept that martyrdom is something that is worthwhile and to be sought after. Okay? Not just a thing that is good if it occurs during persecution, but something that you should actively seek out. To the point that at times there were Donatists, oh wait, there was, oh goodness, what was the phrase? <sighs> One second here, let me see if I copied this. No, no, no. No, I did not. Darn. <sighs> there were two very similar phrases that were used, glory to God, and like the Donatists had a second phrase that they would say instead of glory be to God, right? Uh, but they would actually at times just like run into Roman authority shouting this, hoping they would get stabbed. And if they didn't get stabbed, sometimes they'd actually shout it while jumping off a cliff. Like, no, it's for his glory. And no, this was martyrdom, not suicide. Uh, interesting. 
Augustine actually wrote a bunch of works against this movement, and one of my favorite stories ever occurs in one of his works, okay? Where is it at? So Augustine tells this story, okay, of a man who was a Catholic, who was set upon by a group of Donatists, who came at him with knives and surrounded him and said to this Catholic, you, we need you to martyr us. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. Okay? So a group of like five or six Donatists came up to this Catholic and said, I need you to martyr us or we're going to kill you. And the Catholic said, I don't like killing people, but okay if you insist. All right? Now his response was, you know, but just so you don't, just because I, I want to make it easier on me, do you mind if I tie you up first before I kill you? <laughs> and the Donatists say, sure, that sounds good. That sounds fine. So he ties them all up. Then he sets down the knife, goes and gets a big stick and beats the crap out of them, but doesn't kill them, and then leaves. <laughs> okay? This is a story, by the way, that St. Augustine sent to a different person to demonstrate the weirdness of this group of people, okay? Actively sought martyrdom to the point they would literally go and threaten people with death if they didn't kill them. Kind of a weird, weird schism, Right? But it happened. Now, Augustine is one of the main people we look at whenever we're trying to figure out why this is an inappropriate thing for us to believe today. And it's something that we today have to deal with a lot, whether you recognize it or not. Uh, Has anyone here been in a situation where they have seen a member of the clergy fail spectacularly? Hey, right? I have. Uh, Have you ever seen someone fail hard enough that you think, man, maybe the stuff they did was not good or worthwhile. Yeah, right? Uh, I actually have a friend who is a pastor at another church where I was having a conversation with him about this, and he said, man, that one guy did so bad that if any of his people came to our church, I would rebaptize. I'm like, okay, cool. You're a heretic. <laughs> and he's like, why? And I'm like, well, because of this. He's like, I guess I am. And he left it at that. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. You should worry about that concept. Uh, You see, we deal with the fact that clergy are sinful. I guarantee you, if you are sitting in this room, you have dealt with it in the past, and I guarantee you, if you are sitting in this room, you will deal with it in the future, because I'm not perfect. Maybe I won't lapse in the same way other people have. Maybe I won't make the same mistakes you have seen other pastors make. But at some point, I will do something stupid, probably today. Brent's like, what do you mean, maybe? (laughs) I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. Jake is not perfect. Jake is going to make mistakes. The rest of the pastors and people in your life, the rest of the clergy that you work with in your life, they're not perfect. And that's okay. Augustine is one of the main people who spoke about this. And here's how he spoke. He's speaking about the, the, the first, I didn't even bother trying to pronounce this guy's name. Because this is the bishop that had erred, the th- of the three bishops who appointed the other bishops. This is the name of the bishop that erred. Caelicilianus. Uh, uh, it has one of those cool A-E Britannica things right after a C, and I'm done. It's that, it's C, that letter C, and I got nothing, right? Uh, Caesalius, we're going to call him. Caesalianus. In Augustine's letter, he says, for we cannot allow that if Cassalianus had erred, 
a supposition which I make without prejudice to his integrity. Basically saying, I don't know if he has or not. But if we allow that he had erred, Christ, we cannot allow that if he had erred, Christ should therefore have forfeited his inheritance. We cannot allow that if he had sinned, Christ should forfeit his inheritance. Because, basically, if our inheritance in Christ is based upon our sinlessness, then we are all condemned because we cannot be sinless. He also said this, Mere piety, truth, and love forbid us to receive against Cassilianus the testimony of men whom we do not find in the church, uh, which has the testimony of God, for those who do not follow the testimony of God had forfeited the weight which otherwise would have attached to the testimony of men. So he's arguing that because they have chosen to leave the church, their testimony matters less. And whenever he speaks of the testimony of God, Augustine means a couple of different things. One being the testimony that is attached to the church itself through apostolic succession. But then he also is speaking about the word of God itself through scripture. And we can see that because of this other section. He says this, whether Cassilianus was ordained by men who had delivered up the sacred books, I do not know. They don't know, right? I did not see it. I heard it only from his enemies. <laughs> I wasn't present, and no one that is his friend is saying he did this, all right? If your friends say you messed up, you probably messed up. If your enemies did, you might have, all right? It is not declared to me in the law of God or the utterances of the prophets or in the holy poetry of the Psalms or in the writings of any one of Christ's apostles or in the eloquence of Christ himself. He points out that the testimony that he cares about is the testimony that comes from the Word of God. He basically walks through quite nicely all of it, right? Now, Augustine, I'm going to be honest, I also disagree with where he goes with his logic because his next point is to take this and say all of those things, using various scriptures out of context, mean that only those who have apostolic authority count, right? Uh, and he actually uses random things from Psalms and random things from uh, Proverbs and random things from uh, Leviticus. I think he pulls one from. Uh, so I disagree with where he goes with it finally, but I agree with his appeal to authority in Scripture. Right? We cannot hold past sins completely to wipe out the good people have done because to do so would mean to wipe out any good anyone has ever done before. If you want to talk about this from a scriptural way, let's look at Paul the Apostle, who in Romans 7 is speaking about the need for the law and how good it is and how awesome it is. And by the way, he doesn't like people trying to follow it completely perfectly himself. But he says this in 7.15. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it. Uh, if I now do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is the no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I do what is right, evil lies close at hand. 
I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war in the law of my own mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The Apostle Paul is writing about the fact that within himself there is a war waging that which is good and godly and that which is sinful. And that while he seeks and wants to do good, he also knows that within him he seeks and wants to do that which is not good. And at times he will do what is good and at times he will do what is not good. And it's a war that is waging and he is broken and he is in trouble. He is wretched. What a wretched man I am, right? Who here, by the way, has ever felt what a wretched man I am before? Perhaps not man, what a wretched woman I am, right? Or person, right? What a wretched man I am. Who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I still serve the law of sin. Who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul answers it. Who can save us from our own sin? Jesus, right? The authority that is being passed through whenever uh, what are known as sacraments in the higher churches or what are known as ordinances within us, that authority is not an authority that comes from man. That authority comes from God himself. And so whenever a person is baptized, if I'm the one dipping them, it doesn't matter because the actual authority that comes from baptism is coming from Christ. In the Catholic Church, they hold that grace is actually given through these ordinances. And so by receiving baptism, you're actually receiving the grace of God onto yourself. While we disagree with that as a church, they would still argue that even if someone is baptized by a uh, renegade Catholic priest who is not falling under Roman authority appropriately, that person will still receive grace from God through baptism which is why they didn't require Donatists to be rebaptized whenever they entered. They held that it was God who was doing the baptizing. And the authority of God is the one who is doing it. And God himself is not going to be quelled by sinful men because of their actions. Same deal with the giving of the Eucharist, uh, which people like Augustine actually held to be a sacrifice to God on a regular basis by the church. He would argue that even if the one giving that sacrifice is imperfect, it is not the one who is sacrificing, but the one who is being sacrificed that matters. Right? And so those who took Eucharist underneath the authority of the bishops and the Donatist movement were not held to be wholly outside the grace of God. They were still held to be fellow and brother Christians, just misled in their authority. Same deal with us today. Uh, if I see a pastor who has sinned greatly uh, and even possibly is still sinning greatly from their pulpit, that doesn't mean that if they baptize someone, I need to rebaptize them if they show up here. No, because they weren't baptized into that person's name. They were baptized into Christ. Just as Paul says, were you baptized into Apollo? Were you baptized into Paul? No, you were baptized into Christ. The one who does it doesn't matter as much as the one who it is being done on behalf of right? Oh, goodness. Uh, Paul talks about this in another section, one of his letters, whenever he talks about the issues he has with the super apostles. These are people who are, he literally calls them the super apostles, guys. 
which is not the people that we know of the apostles. These are people who are going around performing signs and wonders, proclaiming God's word, but doing so in a way that benefited themselves and didn't benefit the church as a whole. And so they were doing so for profit. Oh, hey guys, no, I'm super awesome. Let me tell you about this Jesus guy. Also, money, please, right? I'd like to be rich. It'd be awesome. Give me a jumbo jet or a very nice horse, whatever the equivalent is in their culture, right? Uh, and he said that these people who are doing so are doing so out of false motives and to gain for themselves. And Paul's response to them is that, you know what? I don't care if someone is preaching the gospel out of false motives or out of good. I don't care if he's preaching them out of ways to make himself better or to better himself or to better other people. What I care about is the fact the gospel is being preached. He wants to see the gospel preached. He doesn't care who it's preached by. Now, does he prefer one set? Oh, certainly, right? And it's okay as Christians to prefer one over the other as well. But what he's stating again is that uh, it is not the one who is doing things that matters. It's the one who's being proclaimed. This is where we see the sin of Nodism step in. Whenever we stop looking at who we are proclaiming and start looking at the one who's proclaiming it and claiming that the one who proclaims it is the one who matters in the things that happen. If you think your baptism only counts because I baptized you, we have an issue. If you think your baptism only counts if you were baptized in this building, we have an issue. If you think your baptism only counts uh, because your pastor has never been caught up in sexual sin, we have an issue. It is not the one who is serving that matters. It's the one who is being served. Now again, as the Catholic Church would rightly state in this case, that doesn't mean you can't have a preference, right? And that you should have good theological grounding to what you're doing or what you believe. They held heavily that it was wrong for Donatists to claim that you had to be perfect in order to be a clergy member. Rightly so, because of the teachings of Scripture. Scripture teaches that there is no one good but God alone. There is no one sinless but Christ alone. And so if we hold that people have to be sinless to be clergy members, there is no clergy member but Christ. They were basically trying to hold this sect to rigor, right? And the sect was saying, sure, but some sins are worse than others. Which, to a point, yeah, kind of. Even the Catholic Church would hold the same. They held that those who were murderers, adulterers, or apostates had a much more difficult time regaining communion than someone who accidentally stole $5. Right? But the issue being that there should not be no path back to repentance for some sin. That everything is repentable. Everything is forgivable. By God. And that we as the church are not the ones who can make a judgment based on it. Make sense? Yeah. So as you go, as you leave this place, as you see pastors sometimes sucking, first off, my apologies, we do suck at times. Forgive. Doesn't mean you have to forget completely and go ahead and just serve anybody, uh, but forgive the pastors and recognize that it's possible God still did good things through them 
even if they were ungodly. I'm going to be honest, I have to believe this because about half of my ministry life was given over to a church wherein the pastor did some pretty bad things. But I also know from some of the people that I'm even working with now that God did great things through that church as well, that he glorified himself, that he proclaimed his goodness and he proclaimed his holiness. And even through the brokenness of what happened, God can still be glorified. And so I can work to forgive this person. I can work to uh, find some way to see him reconciled to Christ. And I can pray wholly and fully for him to be fully restored at some point. Heck, I can even pray for him to be back in ministry at some point. Granted, assuming he repents fully and appropriately, right? Uh, this sin has nothing to do with people in unrepentant sin continuing in their ministries. This is wholly about whether or not people can, in repentance, step back in. The answer to that has to be yes in some way, shape, or form. Because otherwise we're saying that we're limiting what God can forgive. If Paul can become the greatest evangelist after literally taking part in the killing of Stephen, there's not very much that we can say Christ can't get someone past. Make sense? Now let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you for the fact that you forgive, that you overcome our sin. We thank you for the fact that you are the one by whom we can actually have forgiveness. Because, Lord, if it was up to us and our perfection, we would be in a lot of trouble. We can never deserve or earn forgiveness because we can never be perfect. Thanks be to you for your perfection. Thank you for your sinless life. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for rising again and proclaiming your victory over death and over sin and over the world. Lord God, may you reign. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, Brett, you got that one? Good job. What a sound guy. Perfect. Um, what a sound gentleman. <laughs> no, I, I think it's a... Well, as many of you, especially having Lambert here, he knows I, I love my old, my old saint philosophers and theologians so like Augustine, but I think that's a cool point even with like Donatism and things like that is that it's very important that we don't find ourselves making these people our Christ or making these people more than what they are. They are human. Like with Augustine, like his views on sexuality and things like that or even his view of sex, I strongly disagree with. Does that mean though that I'm just like, all your work is crap and none of it is good? No, there's a lot of good work in what he does. Same with Bonhoeffer. I think there's times where he comes across very, like, pompous and, and blunt and pious. Um, yeah, yeah. But in the same sense, it's also really good in some of his texts that it pans out. But the beauty of it is that it's God and it's Christ through them that these works are being done and that they are not perfect. It's Christ who is perfect. Uh, and it's through him that they're able to do these ministries and do this work, much like Paul. And even we were talking about today with Stephen um, and how towards those Acts chapter 6, towards uh, the end of the passage we were reading, how, like, says how his face shone or was bright like an angel uh, and how previously like people would have known the story of Moses and how Moses when he came down from a presence of the divine had a glow to him or had a hue to him something about him that said he was 
in a transcendent reality or was in presence of something divine that transcends him. But still, even culturally at the time, with Stephen, people still were just like, we don't really know. It was actually Emily that brought up the point. It doesn't really say what they did about it. It just says that, here it is. He's shown like an angel. Um, but even today, how we do this, like, are we so stuck on making our theology work, making our church work, making how we see religion work, making how we see our policies work, that we actually miss a presence or an encounter with the divine? We miss God moving or working because we're saying, well, no, that's not how my God works. That's not how I like my Jesus to work. You know, and so I think it's important that, especially as we go into this picnic today, and that we're spending time with the community around us, that we're not just portraying what we think as city church is Jesus, that we're not just portraying what we think is Canton Jesus, but we truly are portraying the fact that, like, we are not perfect, and it's through our suffering, it's through our imperfections, that we can actually be joined in community through Christ's perfection. And I can't say that, hey, this is how Jesus is perfectly but what I can say is that collectively we can work together. We can find out these mysteries and work together with this mystery and allow Christ to join us through this. Um, and, you know, like I said, even though there are moments where people were quoted and they said stuff that, you know, maybe I disagreed with, like one of the things I've always liked is the whole concept, and Zach, I've talked about this, is that like look at people less in the light of what they do and don't do and more of where they suffer. This is where we're joined. It's far likely, more likely for you to have a conversation with somebody about suffering and struggling and working together and depending on Christ than it is to say, hey, this is how great this Jesus is and this is how perfect I am. People tend to not relate to that too well because I don't know about you, but I, I kind of I struggle with that. I'm not a very perfect person uh, and I can see those imperfections. But Christ did this and he demonstrated this when he broke himself and he poured himself out. And as Augustine pointed out, is that if we're focused on this perfection, if we're focused on this legalism, about what we do and don't do, then why did Christ even do what he did? If we can achieve salvation, if we can achieve perfection on our own, then we don't need him. So why did he, why did he crucify himself? Why did he give himself on behalf of us? Why did he live the life that he lived? Why did he have to re be resurrected? It's very important that we take that off of ourselves. And that weight can be overbearing at times. Instead of remembering it's not our weight to carry. Christ carried it for us. He is our mediation. It's through him that God sees perfection. And so as you participate in communion, I ask that you would pray for the picnic today, that you'd pray for the communities that are surrounding you. Um, but instead of saying, this is how whole I am, this is how great I am, this is how good I look, this is how in our church I feel like I'm a good Christian, ask yourselves in what areas instead of being whole is Christ allowing you to be broken? And what areas instead of saying, I'm going to hold on to this and this is mine to keep or I'm going to take from other people, and where are you pouring out? Um, this is the model that Christ gave. He allowed himself to be broken and poured out on our behalf in order that we would do the same, that we'd find wholeness in him, wholeness in community, and be poured back out and broken into the people around us. Uh, and as I've said before, the church is built of shipwrecks. We are broken vessels. That, that's what the church is built on. It's built around Christ, but he takes this broken wood, he takes these planks that have crashed against the shores, and he builds his building out of this. This is what our church is. And we all know it's not just the building, it's us. Um, but we're all broken. So reflect on that, meditate on that, and when you're ready, please feel free to come up and participate in communion with us.